So my goal today is uh, to set up the end of the week. Uh, and I do that because I'm trying to, we're walking through this very much in the, in the pattern that was established by uh, the ancient church and a pattern that, uh, that focuses on Holy Week and tries to help us walk through it and, and live in the midst of it and embrace all of it. Now, when I say I'm trying to get you prepared for the end of the week, I don't mean Easter. That's jumping way too far ahead. Uh, for starters, we have services on Thursday night. We have a Monday Thursday service, an improv uh, group at the Highland Park campus sort of performing a rendition, a, a 21st century rendition of the Last Supper. We did this last year. Many were quite taken by it, so we're doing it again this year. And then, of course, on Good Friday, which is actually only called Good Friday uh, in the United States. The rest of the world calls it something like Black Friday or Sorrowful Friday or Long Friday. Uh, Americans, right, we always want to put a good spin on things, so somehow we got Good Friday out of it. Uh, but on Good Friday, we have open communion here and at Crossroads from 1 to 3, just private meditation and communion. And then uh, at 7 o'clock, again, here at Crossroads, we have uh, a Good Friday service, which will end in darkness and silence. And then we have an Easter vigil service on Saturday, which starts in darkness and begins to transition into light. And then, of course, Easter services. But I'm, I'm trying to, uh, I'm, I just want to try and set the stage for you understanding all the things that were happening at this time 2,000 years ago. We call this Holy Week. They did not 2,000 years ago, but it was a very significant week nonetheless because it was the week of the Passover. And that was this sort of high point in the, in the Jewish calendar. It was a big nationalistic patriotic holiday that the Jews had been celebrating for 1,500 years at the time that Jesus uh, walks into Jerusalem. And it's, it's not uh, just random chance or dumb luck that Jesus arrives at exactly that point in Jerusalem. He is doing it to fulfill prophecy. He's doing it to complete the Passover celebration because his claim ultimately is to be right, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover and all of the events around the sacrificial system are all ultimately just placeholders for what Jesus does for us. So to put that in context, let me just back you up and say, uh, as I've, I've shared this analogy many times, but I'm going to do it pointedly around the Passover, that if the Bible were, was a play, right, it would have two acts. Act 1 is the Old Testament, Act 2 is the New Testament. And uh, it would open with Genesis 12. So Genesis 1 through 11 is all sort of context for the story that begins with the call of Abraham. So if you were to show up at a theater this afternoon to watch a play of the Bible, right, you would have the little playbill, and it would tell you uh, who was playing the various parts, and, but more significantly, it would tell you what had happened just prior to the start of the play. So you get the context for everything that's going to unfold. And the, what, what happens is that a good God, a loving God, created a good world and put us in charge, and we rebelled. And as a result of that rebellion, there is a, there is a cosmic split between God and man. And we, are, we have fallen away, and we are, we are cursed 
But even in the curse that God gives, he makes the promise that he is going to make a way back for us. He is going to provide a, a path. He's going to send someone who will provide a channel to defeat evil and to allow us to move forward. Genesis 3.15 contains this first promise. We call it, theologians call it, the proto, the first evangelion, the first gospel, the first hint of the big story. Now, there's other things that have happened that perhaps the playbill would tell you. You know, Cain kills Abel, and there's a flood, and there's lots of bad stuff. Basically, the story that you're left with is that uh, mankind is in a lot of trouble and can't fix the problems that, uh, that he faces. And so, but there is this promise that God has made that he's going to send someone. So then the curtain goes up, and there is Abraham. He's a shepherd. He's wandering around Fertile Crescent 4,000 years ago. And God calls him and extends this offer. Abraham, follow me. Leave the land that, I, that you're in, the home of your father. Leave this land. Go where I send you. I'll give you land. I'll give you descendants. Abraham's an old man at this point. So that's uh, he and his wife, uh, Sarah, have not been able to have children. So this is a little shocking. But I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. And I'm going to, in fact, bless the entire world through your descendants. And so the Bible, the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament is just reading to see how that promise is going to be fulfilled. Because God has said, I'm going to send someone to make it right. And then he's tapped Abraham. And he said, this, this person who's going to make it right is going to come through your descendants. And so we, we read as, as Abraham uh, has, has finally, finally, finally has a son, Isaac. And then Isaac has uh, uh, two sons, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob, and he, Jacob has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we're sort of following them as, as Abraham's family grows into a tribe and then into a small nation and it continues to, to gain in power. And it goes through all these, these uh, there's various scenes in Act 1. So the patriarchs, the exodus, the conquest, judges, united kingdom and divided kingdom, exile and return. So, so that's what sets it up. But throughout all of the Old Testament, there are three big ideas that just keep getting repeated and reinforced. And, and you, they're critical for us to understand because... Unless we understand these three, then we do not understand uh, what happens with Jesus. People that begin reading the Bible with Jesus, it's sort of like coming into a movie seven-eighths of the way through. Yeah, there's, there's still the climax and some, you know, some excitement and some drama, but you can't really appreciate what's happening if you miss the first seven-eighths of the movie. And so the three big ideas that, that are continually reinforced, number one, um, sin is a capital offense. When we sin, we deserve to die, and, and we sin a lot. Okay, so the Jews keep making mistakes no matter how much they promise. They continue to sin, and the, the punishment, the, the consequences of sin should be death. However, point number two, Innocent third parties can die so that guilty people can go free. And this is, this is an idea that's developed back in, in Genesis chapter, 
early chapters where animals are killed to save uh, Adam and Eve. And then we see blood being an important uh, motif with Cain and Abel. And we see it with, with Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham is supposed to take and sacrifice Isaac, but there's a substitute, a ram is caught in the thicket. And we're just going to see this through, throughout the Old Testament. The, the pinnacle, sort of the thing that kicks everything off, and we'll establish the sacrificial system that will happen over and over. And, and we have on the, uh, on the slides there, we, we have, a, we have a, a, an image of the altar that was, uh, that was part first of the tabernacle. And then when they finally built a temple, it's part of the temple. And day and night, right, the fires of this altar do not go out. And people, the Jews who are guilty of sin, violation of the law in some way, they are required to take an animal and to go to the priest. And then that animal is set uh, on this altar. And in a symbolic act, that innocent animal sheds its blood so that they can be forgiven of their sins and move forward. Well, well, the, the thing that sort of sets the stage for this, and it's so important for our understanding of today's events, Palm Sunday, is the Passover. So Abraham's family grows, you know, and they become this, this fairly significant uh, tribe, small nation. But they're going to leave the promised land that God gave to Abraham when a drought kicks in, and they go into Egypt. And they go into Egypt on the, you know, the, the, the invitation of Joseph, who is uh, one of the youngest sons of, uh, of Jacob. And again, I always joke, played by Donny Osmond in the play. But, uh, but Joseph has gone forward into Egypt, and he then welcomes them. And they stay in Egypt for a considerable period of time, and they fall out of favor with the Pharaoh, and they are pressed into slavery. And they will, they will exist as slaves for 400 years until Moses is called by God. And uh, uh, no longer played by uh, Charlton Heston. It's Christian Bale now. But Moses is called by God. And he's instructed to lead the people out of captivity. And there's a series of plagues that God sends to help get the attention of Pharaoh. And the tenth plague is... Uh, the, the Passover is, is where the Passover occurs. So God instructs Moses to tell the people that he's sending the angel of death who is going to take the life of every firstborn male in every family in the land. And if they want the angel of death to spare their son, their firstborn son, they need to take, and this is all symbolic of Jesus, right? They need to take a perfect, unblemished male lamb and they are to sacrifice it and they're to take the blood of the lamb and they're to paint the doorpost so that when the angel of death comes he will pass over that house and that is what finally sort of jars pharaoh into letting the the jewish slaves go free and then of course they go out into the desert where they wander around for 40 years before they will move into uh, the promised land under Joshua, and then exist as tribes for a while. So, so this, this Passover event is enormously significant in the lives of the Jews. And per God's instruction, they will repeat some of the events that, that surrounded it, the special meal, the flight. They will repeat those uh, on 
the anniversary of the Passover. And they will have been doing this for 1,500 years when Jesus arrives. Now, Christ's arrival is uh, a long time coming. So after the, the Jews get out into the desert and then they finally uh, they go into the promised land under Joshua, they'll exist as a tribe, a loose confederation for a number of years, hundreds of years, before they're united as a kingdom. Uh, Saul is the first king. He's bad. Uh, he, he does a lot of bad things. He looks the part, tall, dark, and handsome, but he can't lead. David will be the one that will pull everything together. And it's sort of a high watermark in Jewish history, King David. He's a, he's a wise king, he's a poet, but he's also a warrior. And, uh, and, and he will defeat the enemies, expand the borders, fill the treasury. He'll do everything right, except he can't build a temple because he's a man of war. But, but when he dies, he will, uh, he will turn things over to his son Solomon. And Solomon will build this enormous temple. It will, it will take all the wealth out of the treasury and all this gold and everything will be used to build this enormous temple. And the Jews love the temple and that's where the sacrifices take place. And it's, it's where God sort of resides on earth. It's the intersection of God and man. And it's this big event. And, and it, it's a reminder, it's a statement we are God's chosen people. And they're starting to feel at this moment under David, you know, the promises that God gave all the way back to Abraham, we see them coming together. Abraham has become this powerful nation, the superpower of the world. And we can see how God is just going to take this one step further and bless the whole world through us. And isn't it great to be us? Right? And so that's, that's what's going on after David dies, Solomon takes over. After Solomon takes over, everything falls apart. The kingdom divides. The northern ten tribes are bad. Because in order to mobilize these ten tribes and keep them from going to Jerusalem into the temple to offer sacrifices, they have to come up with their own temple. Right? And they fall into idolatry. And the northern ten tribes have got all bad kings. Nothing works for them. Eventually, 722 B.C., they're taken over by the Assyrians. Destroyed. We don't hear from them again. About 150 years later, the southern two tribes, which have had some good kings, some bad kings, good days, bad days, they've been faithful, unfaithful, whatever. In 586, they fall. They fall to the Babylonians. They're not destroyed, but they're taken into captivity. Exile is what we call it. Seventy years they live in exile. They're not in Jerusalem. By the way, the temple is ransacked. All the wealth out of Jerusalem is taken away. And, and when the Old Testament ends, what happens is they're finally allowed to go back, but the temple no longer exists. The great temple of Solomon on the left no longer exists. And what they end up with is just a, they rebuild it, but it's a tiny little, it's a kid's fort. Right? I mean, that's where they're at. They'd been the superpower of the world. Now they're nothing. Their temple had been glorious, one of the treasures of the entire planet. Now it's nothing. And that's where things are at when the Old Testament ends. And the Jews are left wondering, where's the promise of God? He said he was going to send someone who was going to bless us. And, you know, that through us, the blessing for the whole world was going to come. How, how is it that we've come to this now? And for 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have, uh, we have radio silence from heaven. Okay? 
No prophets speak. Uh, some good things and some bad things happen to the Jews. Uh, but basically it's an intermission. And it's a 400-year-long intermission. If you were in drive-ins, you know, years ago, snack bar is still open for 399 years because you got a long time before anything new is going to happen. And then that's when the silence is broken. And this is where we, we get back to the series in Luke that we've been doing. So the silence is broken when the angel Gabriel says to a prophet, uh, excuse me, says to a priest, a man by the name of Zechariah, God has heard your prayers and he, he is going to give your wife a son. That son will be John the Baptist, the one who comes sort of in the, in the stead of Malachi to announce that it's time to get ready for the fulfillment of the promise. And then that angel then later goes to visit a young uh, girl, a, a young virgin by the name of Mary and tells her that she is going to conceive through the Holy Spirit and give birth to a son who is the Savior of the world. And so in our series in Luke, um, we then, we had a little, little intro series on the birth narratives and sort of all the events around that, right? The angel and then the, the wise men and the virgin birth and Herod. And then, then they got to flee to Egypt because Herod's trying to kill the baby. And then we don't hear much about uh, Jesus, Mary, or Joseph until we get a little snippet at, the, at, at his 12th birthday. Just enough to know that he's significant. He's, he's remarkable. He's not a typical 12-year-old boy. And then we jump ahead uh, to, to the baptism of Jesus. And he's baptized by John the Baptist. And then he goes out into the desert where he prays and prepares for his mission, 40 days fasting. At the end of that time, he comes out as a uh, as a, a, a rabbi, and he's traveling around preaching and speaking. And we call this series Amazed, because he quickly amazes everybody by the power of his teaching and by his ability to do miracles. And he demonstrates his power sort of in a systematic way. He's got power over death. He's got power over sickness. He's got power over nature, Right? He's, he's got power over evil. And so we see that he's this amazing, amazing guy. And, uh, and then I said at the end of that series, uh, we jumped ahead into the series on revolution. And, and then I said we see how Jesus announces that he is, he is the son of God. He is the one who's come to sort of push back the night. He's come to bring the kingdom of God. And, it's, and he launches the 12 initially and sends them out. And that's when the revolution begins. It's not just one person. There's now 12 others. And then we see that he sent out the 72. And so we see the revolution beginning to take place as the message of God's love, offer, redemption, plan, the ethic that, that Jesus brings, all of that begins to spread. And, and then I said at the end of that revolution series, Jesus is turning his face towards Jerusalem now. And a long part of the Gospel of Luke, right, and the next nine chapters, cover his traveling to Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem is, is you know, it's, it's the epicenter of everything. It's a huge town. And people generally, his disciples, are a little skittish about him going there because they think things will go poorly. And indeed, Jesus begins to be very clear about messaging. I'm actually going there to die. I'm going there, right, to be, to be crucified. And, and that brings us to today. 
the, the beginning of Holy Week. And it kicks off with the triumphal entry where Jesus is going to parade into Jerusalem. Now, there's a few things. We're going to watch a couple clips here from the movie Son of God, which is, uh, I've not seen it. I've just watched the clips. The clips are not perfect, but powerful in conveying what happened. And what you need to know about this moment when Jesus is parading into into Jerusalem at the at the beginning of the Passover celebration is that four things are happening, are taking place. First of all, um, Jesus is, is arriving at the time of this huge holiday. It's, a, it's the big 4th of July on steroids. It's the day where, where uh, all the Jews are getting together to celebrate that God supernaturally elevated them out of slavery and over foreign overlords. Okay? That's what God did at the time of the Passover. He got them out of slavery. They became uh, over the, everybody, ultimately. But they were no longer oppressed. They were no longer, uh, they were no longer subject to some pagan power. Now, the irony, of course, is they're under Roman power at the time. So they're having this big celebration of, we want our freedom, we want our freedom, but we're not free. And so this is a very kinetic moment, right? And the Romans, who in the entire Roman Empire, the Jews gave the Romans more trouble than anybody else, right? They did not like being in subjection to anybody. And so they're always just on a hair trigger ready to revolt. That's why Pilate is in Jerusalem. Because if there's going to be a revolution, right, it's going to happen at the Passover. And so Pilate, who represents Rome, he's got the power of all the military of Rome. Pilate is there in Jerusalem keeping an eye on things. Especially this year because there's this rumor uh, about Jesus that he's going to show up. So Another thing to realize is that Jesus doesn't have to make a big entry. Nobody knows what Jesus looks like, right? This isn't the, this isn't the 21st century. Jesus doesn't have Twitter followers. He doesn't have a Facebook page. There's no Jerusalem Times or People Magazine splashing his face all over so everybody knows what he's like. No, there's no pictures at all. And so Jesus has spent the last couple of years in Galilee Maybe he's been to Jerusalem. We, we don't know. The, the Gospel of Luke that we follow gives us an orderly account, but it doesn't give us a comprehensive account. Right? It really focuses. 80% of the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, 80% is focused on the last three years of Christ's life. And 50% of that is focused on Holy Week. And in the Gospel of John, it's greater than that. Right? We're, we got a focus in the Gospels on this week and on what Christ did at this moment. And so they don't know what he looks like. Jesus could easily have slipped into Jerusalem, but he doesn't. Right? He comes to, and he rides a donkey, which is, uh, which is a statement that he's fulfilling prophecy because there's a prophecy, behold, your king will come riding a donkey. This is what Solomon had done. So it's this 
confusing, lost on most people, but not on everybody, that he's riding in on a donkey. And the palm branches that are being waved, that's sort of a political statement. Because there was a period of time during the 400 years intermission when the Jews, uh, they, first they're going to fall, they're free when the, when the Old Testament ends. They, they're nobodies, they're small change, but they're not under any, any foreign power. Alexander the Great's going to conquer that whole area. So they're going to be subject to the, to the Greeks. He dies. Alexander dies at a young age. His lieutenants are not very good. So they subject the Jews sort of mercilessly. And there's a revolt, the Maccabean revolt. And, uh, and they gain their independence during about a 100-year stretch. And during that 100-year stretch, um, the, the coins for the Jewish nation had the palm branch on it. It was their flag. It was their symbol. And so when they're waving these palm branches, right, that's like waving the, the, the Jewish independent flag, not the Roman flag, the Jewish independent flag. And so as Jesus parades in, all of Rome's fears go on high alert, right? Here he comes. He's not coming quietly. He's, he's got a big parade. And we're going to watch this clip and, and just get the context for Christ entering uh, during Holy Week. Let's go ahead and run this. Is he now? He's just entered the city on a donkey. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. Where's he headed? Towards the temple. He must not interfere with Passover. God will bring his wrath down upon all of us. And who knows what Pilate will do if the crowds run out of control? Nicodemus, go with Malchus. If he enters the temple, watch him. Do not blink. Go. So we get a little uh, foreshadowing there of, uh, of, of Jesus seeing the Roman power that's in play. As it turns out, he shifts tactics. It looks like he's going to make a big political scene. He doesn't follow that up. 
which is going to be part of the reason that the, the Jewish crowd really gets frustrated with him by the end of the week. Instead, he turns his attention away from the Roman leaders to the Jewish leaders, and he puts them on high alert. He goes into the temple, and he is going to sort of have a little, uh, have a little fit of righteous anger when he sees what the religious leaders have done with the temple. Let's run this clip. written my house my house shall be called a house of prayer but you you have made it a den of thieves who are you to tell us this we teach the law not you you pray lofty prayers and love your shows of piety in the temple. Hypocrites. In other gospel accounts, we're told that Jesus will. Uh, in the out, just outside of the temple, he will be teaching, he will be forgiving people's sins, he'll be healing people, which is another sort of direct assault on the Jewish leaders because all those things were supposed to happen in the temple. And here Jesus is doing it outside of the temple. So I'm going to jump ahead now to Thursday. So on, on, on Sunday, he parades into great acclaim. On Monday, he goes into the temple and he overturns the tables and, and, and puts the Jewish religious leaders on high alert. On Tuesday and Wednesday, he will return. He goes outside of the town to sleep, but he keeps returning into the city, teaching and healing. On Thursday, he will gather the disciples together in the upper room for their Passover celebration. And here, at what we call the Last Supper, Jesus is going to change Passover, which had been in place for 1,500 years. Every year they had celebrated this event. He's going to change it. He's going to go off script. There was a script that you would follow through this meal. He is going to go off script, and he is going to set up Holy Communion, which we're going to celebrate in just a minute, by saying, in essence, I'm the Passover lamb. Right? He's going to take the bread and he's going to break it and says, this bread is my body. 
which is given for you. So we're going to watch a clip here uh, that, that takes place on Thursday in the upper room of the Last Supper uh, of Christ. Let's run this final clip. My favorite is Philip, so we didn't, didn't make it. Whose is it? Thank you, Lord, by whose word everything comes to be. Amen. Amen. This is our last meal together. Before I die. What do you mean? I'm going to be betrayed to my enemies. Arrested. And condemned to death. Don't be afraid. Trust in God. Trust in me also. You know the way to where I'm going. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. This, this is my body. This is my blood. Remember me by doing this. I'm going to the Father, but I will always be with you.
now I must tell you that one of you here will betray me. So later that evening, Jesus is betrayed by Judas, and he is arrested by Romans and taken before a series of um, hastily and sort of illegally called uh, trials. And eventually, he'll be beaten and then brought out before the crowd on Friday uh, afternoon. And this is where uh, we all get to play a part. This is your speaking part in this sermon. Historically, uh, on, the, on the Palm Sunday service, uh, the, the, one words, the words of the congregation are limited to crucify him. Because we need to understand, um, the Romans, the, the blame for Christ's death doesn't go to the Romans. It doesn't go to the Jews. First of all, Christ's life was not taken from him, as he says. I willingly lay it down. And secondly, Jesus was sent by the Father on a mission to die. But, but more significantly, what we need to understand is Christ died because of me, right? I'm the one that's guilty of Christ's death because he died in my place to bear my sin. And so uh, I'm going to ask you now to stand. And I'm going to read out of uh, Luke 23, beginning with verse 13. And the words will be on the, on the screen, and your part will be, uh, to chime in, crucify him. You cannot miss it. It's in big red letters when it comes. So um, I'm reading now about the events on Friday. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. You may be seated. This is where our survey ends. Um, the next few days, I'd encourage you to perhaps read uh, on your own through the last chapters of Luke. You could begin around Luke 20 and pick up the, the events of the final week of Christ's life. As noted earlier, we'll have a special service on Thursday, Maundy Thursday, recreating 21st century improv recreation of the Last Supper. And then on Friday, Good Friday, or Long Friday, or Sorrowful Friday, there will be an opportunity for reflection uh, here, 1 o'clock, 1 to 3, also at Crossroads, private time of communion and reflection, and then we'll have a Good Friday service on uh, Friday evening at 7 o'clock. Um, right now, uh, we have an opportunity to sort of back up just a little bit uh, from talking about Good Friday to the events of Thursday as we come to Holy Communion. And 
we, we stand now in a 2,000-year-old tradition that has repositioned that Passover meal to be Holy Communion. We understand Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We understand Jesus to be the one about whom all the sacrifices that took place during the Old Testament, in the, in the, te- in the tabernacle and the temple, all of those animals that were shedding their blood were placeholders for what Christ did for us. He is the ultimate sacrifice. And, and after Christ's death, there was no longer any need for a sacrifice because his death was sufficient. And so uh, in, in keeping with the pattern set up for us by Christ, we rehearse those events on an, on an ongoing monthly basis. Some do it weekly, some do it daily, but we rehearse those events to draw attention to this critical inflection point in the Bible and in the life of Christ and in the history of the world, the death of Christ. Paul writes, we proclaim, as often as we eat of this bread or drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. It is the death of Christ and then his subsequent resurrection, those two events in in tandem, but principally the death of Christ that is the hinge point of all of history. And so uh, I invite uh, those who are going to help distribute the communion elements to come forward, the musicians as well. And um, as they are coming forward, let me just... Uh, remind you what I state every month when we come to this table, and that is that uh, the communion table at Christ Church is open. That means that you do not have to be a member of this local congregation in order to participate. We recognize a big C church. There is, there is a true church, a universal church, uh, that is made up of all those who have placed their faith in Christ and Christ alone. And if, you're, uh, if you are a Christ follower, then we invite you to participate with us here uh, this morning. And so uh, we're going to distribute the communion elements. Uh, I'm going to ask you to take both the bread and the cup and to hold on to them, and then I will come back up and lead us uh, in participation. Let me pray right now. Father, uh, the, the unfolding drama that happens on the pages of Scripture, uh, indeed the, the pivot point of all of history, it's, it's, we confess, we just often are looking in other directions and don't understand or appreciate what you have done for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your obedience to death, even death on a cross, that um, you would lay down your life for us. And we praise you for that. And Spirit of God, we pause now and uh, pray that you would meet with us in these quiet moments as we uh, do our best to prepare our hearts to come again to this table. And uh, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.